Hello, Politics and Media 101 listeners. After taking a month or so off, John Gunnison and I and the Politics and Media 101 team are back hosting events every Tuesday and Thursday mornings. They'll post live at 5 a.m. Eastern. Today, we have a special event with author, journalist, political commentator, David Korn. He's on to discuss American Psychosis, his new book, A Historical Investigation of How the Republican Party Went Crazy. Um, So strap in and listen to David, John, and I get into a history of the GOP and essentially how we wound up where we are today with President Trump and the Trump Republicans running the Bruce in Washington. Good evening, David. Good evening. So David, I think that one of the things that I'm most curious about asking you right here at the beginning is how you decided how large of a scale you wanted to depict in this book. I mean, you've written this grand sweeping history of the entire institutional Republican Party. It seems like you are using 1964 as a key bookend for the current age. You're using the example of the convention where Barry Goldwater and Nelson Rockefeller were at loggerheads over which direction to bring the party. But you've also written in some of your other chapters, uh, the really broad history of the GOP, You know, going back to its origins in the 1850s, and in some instances, you even allude back to the very earliest days of American settlements and the Salem witch trials. How did you decide where to start this story? Well, I think the modern Republican Party begins after World War II. People probably don't remember this or don't know it, in that FDR decimated the Republican Party. I don't have the figures in front of me right now, but at some point in the 40s, they were down to like, 10, 12 senators and a very small number of House representative members of the House of Representatives. And it really looked as if the party was just completely dead in the water, as it probably should have been. They, it was the party in charge in the 20s and had a whole theory about laissez-faire and a go-go-go, Wall Street-driven, speculative-driven economy, and that blew up in its face. And then they was it was the party of isolationism prior to World War II. There were some Democrats or isolationists and some Republicans who weren't, but one of the biggest isolationists was Robert Taft, the leader of the Republican Party. And it turned out that isolationism, well, it kind of ended at Pearl Harbor, right? So on the two big issues, foreign policy and the economy, FDR reigned supreme. And he brought the economy back and he won the war. So at the end of that period, the Republicans were, as I said a moment ago, decimated. And so I really pick up their story at that point in time, and we can move it forward from there. But I did think it was important in the book to give the what I call the two backstories. One is simply the backstory of the Republican Party, how it was born in eighteen in the eighteen fifties as a response to the effort to allow slavery to expand into the Western states and territories. And the party was not opposed entirely to slavery, but it wanted to stop the expansion of slavery. And there was a moral component to that, but there was also a strong economic component to that. If slavery was allowed to expand to the West, the, the, the slavers of the South, the big plantation owners, would have this tremendous economic Social and political power. They could, they could extend their 
industry, which is what it was, to the West. And think of small entrepreneurs. At that point, we're talking about small farms run by white men, of course, would have no ability for economic opportunity. They couldn't compete with large-scale plantations where labor was free if they wanted to start farming. So another aspect of this was that the Republican Party was for economic opportunity. Again, for white guys, but those were the only people, you know, who were considered full citizens at that point. And so the Republican Party arose out of these noble intentions and quickly won the presidency six years later with Abraham Lincoln, who was big on education, creating land-grant colleges, and what we call infrastructure now, creating um, harbors and other modes of transportation that would allow, again, for economic opportunity. And so the Republican Party had this very, very noble origin story. So I thought it was important to talk about that and how after that point onward, it sort of had this internal conflict between these progressive values and what it, and, 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 and its fealty to the corporate class, which came about 10, 20 years after Lincoln. It went back and forth. And you remember Teddy Roosevelt, the great progressive fighting corporate or, uh, you know, sort of reigning in corporate power and also trying to rein in the power of political contributions. And then he, you know, was president. Then he lost the fight to President Taft, who represented the more conservative business oriented elements of the party. So the party went back and forth up until World War II. And, but I really pick up the story with, okay, the party is in shambles after World, World War II. What is it going to do? And at first, Richard Nixon showed the way by becoming a red baiter. Now, red baiting had been around for a couple of decades, and Republicans and Democrats had engaged in this. But he took the Alger Hiss case and made it a central tenant of the Republican mission and showed how it could be used to demonize Democrats as opposed to Reds. In the past, Democrats and Republicans had both been red baiters, but it hadn't been weaponized in a partisan fashion to a great degree. You know, I guess, you know, they, they accused Roosevelt of being a commie and a socialist, but I'm talking about after World War II when you, when you have the, the, the Cold War and the Red Scare. Nixon saw how it could be weaponized in a partisan way. And he was soon eclipsed by Joe McCarthy. And this is where it really picks up steam and gets us to, you know, gets to the thesis of my book, which is that for seven decades, the Republican Party has been encouraging and exploiting far right fanaticism, extremism, which could be bigotry, racism, but also paranoia and conspiracy theory. And McCarthy rose to power claiming a small cabal of elites and democratic officials were running the U.S. government and trying to destroy it from within so it would fall to the Soviet Union. And it wasn't that their policies were wrong. It's that they were purposefully trying to subvert the United States and lead to its uh, uh, basically abolition. And the person in charge of this, he said on the Senate floor, was George C. Marshall. Marshall had been Army Chief of Staff when the U.S. Army helped win World War II. He had been uh, Secretary of State and helped plan the Marshall Plan, which saved Europe. And at this point in time, he was Secretary of Defense. 
Now, this is a lot like QAnon, but without the baby eating and sex trafficking. That there's this evil, he didn't say satanic, but evil force of, of elites who were purposely trying to destroy the United States. And you know what? It worked. It helped him win elections. It helped him elect other Republicans. And in the early, early 50s, at the 52 convention, the Republican Party lionized him. Uh, Dwight David Eisenhower, campaigning for president in 1952, campaigned with Joe McCarthy. And while he hated McCarthy, thought he was a scoundrel and liar, and even considered giving a speech denouncing him, ended up not giving that speech and giving a speech that echoed McCarthy, and more sort of a light McCarthyism. That was like the entry point for the party, party saying, we can exploit paranoia, resentment, fear, and turn it into a partisan advantage. I want to ask you about one aspect of this, and that's the racial aspect. So we know how, just as you've recounted, the GOP was founded largely to try to prevent the spread of slavery into new territories. It was, in many regards, an anti-slavery party. Uh, we also are all very familiar with the narrative of how the parties began to evolve in opposite directions in the civil rights and post-civil rights era. The idea of the Southern strategy, how the Civil Rights Act encouraged many Southern Democrats to gradually move over to the GOP. You've also recounted how in the time in between, there were very important, prominent conservative trends and strands in the GOP, uh, anti-communism, isolationism. But you described how even in 1964, even before the big Civil Rights Act, even before Richard Nixon ran for president in 1968 and applied this Southern strategy, even then there were seeds implanted in the GOP of racism. How did we get to there? Uh, is there a little bit more to the story about how the GOP had these racist elements implanted even before the 1960s? Yeah, well, as you know, the Republican Party, seen as the party of Lincoln, was very sympathetic to civil rights and the plight of black Americans. And in fact, black Americans, a lot of them tended to vote for the Republican Party up through the 50s because of that grand tradition. In the late 50s, mid 50s, late 50s, the Republican Party, the RNC, starts a Project Dixie because they think there are Republican votes in the South. Up to now, the Democrats have had a lock on the South, a lot of it through segregationist Democrats. You know, Strom Thurmond was originally a Democrat. Now, he broke with the Democratic Party as when Truman started being in favor of civil rights, and he be, you know, became a Dixiecrat and then later became a Republican. But the Democrats controlled the South, and they tended to um, lean towards segregation and racism. You know, not all of them, but a lot of them. In the late, mid-late 50s, the RNC says, we think we can start getting votes in the South. Now, the interesting thing is they're thinking about suburban Republican voters who they can attract with a progressive Republicanism of Dwight David Eisenhower. He believed in what he called modern Republicanism, which now we would call moderate or liberal Republican, much associated, say, with Nelson Rockefeller. And they thought that could sell in the South, not on a racial basis, but you know, going after sort of the rising middle business class in Southern cities. Well, it kind of quickly changed. Barry Goldwater and other libertarians came to the realization that their anti 
government perspective. Now, that was from, you know, from the West, and it wasn't necessarily focused on matters of civil rights and race, but that their anti-government perspective would play really well in the South as the South came to resent federal intervention on civil rights matters. You know, they say, oh, you don't like the government? We don't like the government, maybe for different reasons, but that, you know, there was a audience of Southern rural voters who were segregationists, racists, didn't want to see the rights of black people advanced, who would be drawn to the libertarianism of conservative Republicans. Richard Nixon is like the key guy here. In 1960, he's running for president. He's vice president. He's running against Jack Kennedy. There's an internal debate within the Republican Party. Is it time now to basically dump our black voters in the Northeast and go for Southern voters and try to win a few states in the South, you know, pick them off from the Democrats or not? And Goldwater encouraged Nixon and the party to do that. Nixon stuck to the traditional Republican plan of supporting your black voters. And he lost very narrowly to John Kennedy, as we remember. And a lot of Republicans took the lesson that he made the wrong choice. And in fact, even, and he even stuck to this position in 62. He writes an article for Ebony magazine about how the Republican party could do more for black Americans. And so he sticks to this position, even though the party itself is now turning in a different direction. And then Come 68, he totally flips. And what, what's happened between 60, the early 60s and 68 is the rise of the, of civil rights movement, the rise of black power, urban unrest, uprisings or riots, whatever you want to call them in Los Angeles and elsewhere. And the rise of white resentment, you know, white backlash to the civil rights era. And who captures that first? is a guy named Ronald Reagan when he runs for governor in 66. And he wins over all these white union middle-class votes talking about welfare and crime and basically attacking civil rights protesters, anti-war protesters, and the long-haired hippie students who want to have free love and smoke dope in Berkeley. And Nixon sees that and says, and sees also that Goldwater won when Goldwater ran in 64 and lost disastrously to a Southerner, uh, Lyndon Johnson, Goldwater still won a handful of Southern states, which no Republican had done recently. So Nixon sees all this and he flips the tables and he goes all in on the Southern strategy, cuts deals with Strom Thurmond, says, you know, tells Southern delegates at the um, 68 convention that there'll be no more pro-Negro crap if I'm elected president and starts race baiting while claiming he's not race baiting, which is what a race baiter does. And it gets him the nomination. Um, Strom Thurmond campaigns for him while George Wallace is running in the South and wins, helps Nixon win a bunch of Southern states, just enough for him to squeak past Hubert Humphrey. So there is, there it is, your Southern strategy born by a guy who eight years earlier had rejected it. So I want to follow up there, David. American psychosis. I've not yet finished it, but I do recommend our readers, listeners to go out there uh, and buy this book, especially if you're on the conservative side, because our audience is left, right, and center. I worked in the Tea Party, and I found a lot of what David wrote, very salient and fascinating history that kind of lays out how we wound up where we are. 
But David, I want you to take a step back and you call the tea party an old wine in a new bottle, right? And we just discussed Goldwater. We just discussed Nixon. And throughout history, we've seen extremism within the GOP. Let's use the 60s till present ebb and flow, right? I found your chapter on W. Bush fascinating, but I would argue that that was a little bit of a low of extremism. And then the Tea Party came up and and it started to get on steroids. Through your historical research for this book, have you been able to see any trends that determine the level of extremism that we're going to see within the GOP and then throughout society? Is there any common threads that even one or two that you can point your finger on? Yeah, that's a really good, good question. You know, there are people who study academic experts, paranoia in politics, conspiracy theory in politics, what I would call extremism in politics. And they often, you know, associate it with a time of turbulence and change. Now, I think we almost always are in a time of turbulence and change. I mean, it's really hard, you know, if you look back, I mean, so in the 50s, right, we have the Cold War and nuclear terror. I don't think you can under, you can overstate how important this new thing is that the world can be destroyed in a moment. Your whole life and everything that came up to now in human civilization can be destroyed. And this was for people who didn't grow up with this. Uh, it was a complete unsettling development. So I think it did lead to a lot of fear and paranoia that could be exploited by McCarthyites and then the John Birch Society and, and others. And, you know, it led to all sorts of extremism. Obviously, the turbulence of the 60s led to extremism, you might argue, on both sides. But there are times, like in the 90s, say, when Newt Gingrich uh, was introducing an extreme form of politics. Admittedly so. He said, we have to fight like this is a civil war, meaning demonize your enemies. We have to be like the Viet Cong. And he put out a list of words to use, you know, for Republicans when they when they talked about Democrats. And they were, you know, enemy treasonous, traitors, anti-children, radical. I mean, he came in and basically said, we got to turn the dial up to 11 and just debase the political discourse, not have honest disagreements, but dehumanize and demonize our enemies. And it was very much in keeping with the message being pushed out by Rush Limbaugh to tens of millions of listeners who he you know, kind of directed into the Republican Party. Now, this was not necessarily a great time of change, you know, in terms of the economy and the social structure of the country. But nevertheless, you had these voices that were very extreme in pushing the party to the right and to the far right. If you look at, say, before, you know, you talk about the Tea Party, but before the Tea Party, we had Sarah Palin. We also had, I think, probably an acceleration in the changing demographics of the country. Country was getting browner, darker, more Latino people. Whites were becoming each year less of a majority. And there were predictions of, you know, eventually it not being a white majority country, which, you know, will indeed happen sometime in in the near future. And that demographic change seemed to fuel a lot of the antipathy towards Barack Obama. That was behind birtherism, um, which... Sarah Palin sort of riffed off when she started attacking Obama for not for pounding around with terrorists and not being a real American and wanting to impose a socialist tyranny on the United States. 
And I don't know if you guys were at the Sarah Palin rallies in 2008, but I was there as reporter. And, you know, and I was with other reporters who had been covering politics for literally for decades. And we had never seen that level of hatred and animosity in the crowd. People shouting, kill him, kill him, traitor, commie. I mean, I've been at rallies, you know, for Jimmy Carter, where the people there hated Ronald Reagan and rallies for Ronald Reagan, where people hated Jimmy Carter. But nobody had that level of viciousness. And Sarah Palin was encouraging this. And I think it had to do with, you know, demographic change to a certain degree. And I think that's what fueled the Tea Party, which started literally the year after, in 2000, 2009. And one of the essences of the Tea Party, and we'd love to hear your take on this, Justin, when I went out and talked to people at the rallies, I'm not talking about people who got elected, but the people at the rallies who dressed up in the funny suits and waved the Gadsden, don't tread on me flags. If you talk to them, they literally said they believed Barack Obama was a secret socialist Muslim born in Kenya who had a secret plan to destroy the American economy so he could impose a totalitarian dictatorship. I mean, they believe that. And why not? Because every night, Glenn Beck on Fox was saying that exact same thing and that there would be concentration camps and death panels with the new health care bill. I'm still waiting on those death panels and radicalizing the base. And the thing that I write about in the book is my book is not a history of far of the far right kooks. It's a history of the Republican interaction. And so in that time frame, John Boehner, then the leading Republican in the House, but not yet House Speaker, was going on Glenn Beck's show, as was Sarah Palin and other prominent Republicans. And as I argue in the book, authenticating and validating, legitimizing his complete bullshit nut crappery. <laughs> that's, I don't think that's a word. But I mean, if you go back, you know, at the time, you know, you could say it seemed almost funny, but it was completely bonkers. And they're out there telling their Republican base, yeah, he's, this is a guy you should listen to. I wouldn't go on his show otherwise. And they don't have to amplify and echo everything he says, but they are saying, you have our uh, good housekeeping seal of approval. And then they're holding Tea Party rallies on the steps of the Capitol, where these sentiments are being expressed and people are holding anti-Semitic and racist posters denigrating Barack Obama and Democrats and shouting Nazis, Nazis at, at the Democrats. So this is happening. Yeah, there's an economic turbulence. And some people thought the Tea Party was mostly about that. But I really think it ended up being mostly about cultural alienation. And when they say, you know, we say make America great again, it really was like going back to a, a period when the country was wider, less diverse, less tolerant, you know, maybe less secular, uh, at least people thought it was less secular. That's always a complicated issue, how religious people are. I don't know what was triggering, what was not triggering. So this is a really hard and difficult question. There are just so many factors to go into what has, what, what, what causes extremism. But you're right. It, at different times, it's more intense and less intense. And at different times, Republicans have embraced it more or embraced it less. George W. Bush tried to keep it at bay when he first started running. But then when he needed it to defeat John McCain, he rushed to the, you know, the far right, the fundamentalists. You're hitting on my theory here. There's a ton that I want to unpack. But first, I would argue, and this is largely from your book and your answer right now, I, I would argue that I agree the Tea Party and, and MAGA largely is, is born out of 
racial feelings, racism, to be blunt. And I can get into some stories interacting with those voters and my boss at the time, Tim Hulescamp. Just hearing you think and speak about this, I think it it ebbs and flows based on the leaders of the party being willing to embrace it for their own means. And, and you mentioned Richard Nixon in 68, embracing it and it fully starting to come out into the open with the Southern strategy and pure racism. And then we just fast forward a little bit. President W. Bush in his first election in 2000 really didn't want to fully embrace it. So he did it at the margins, right? With Karl Rove sending these disgusting mailers in South Carolina about John McCain's daughter. But then we fast forward a little bit. George W. really doesn't embrace it during his whole presidency. Mitt Romney, again, doesn't embrace it. We have the RNC autopsy. They're trying to move away from it. But during that time, you have a groundswell happening when I worked in Congress for a Tea Party member, where ultimately, despite the top-down party leadership not wanting to embrace it, it's being fueled at the congressional, the district, even at, at times the Senate state level where it just creates this grassroots movement largely infused by Coke money from Americans for Prosperity and their organizations. And ultimately, the Tea Party is able to depose John Boehner, the talk show hosts, the radio hosts, like you mentioned, jump on that movement in 2010. They really fuel it up 2013, 2014, to the point where now to become the Republican nominee, you have these folks at the top of the party that have to endorse it. And if we go back It was going to be Ted Cruz, really one of the founding members of the Freedom Caucus. They would have meetings every other Tuesday and Thursday at Tortilla Coast with the House members discussing their machinations and their plans, or it was going to be Trump. And and the net result is we ultimately come with the strongest level of the Tea Party movement. So I think largely it's due to the leaderships and, and their willingness to embrace it, whether that leadership is in the media or at the top of the party. That's a really good observation, but it's a little bit like a chicken and egg thing, right? You know, uh, and that's why I say the the party has exploited and encouraged. At times, it sees what's out there in the grassroots and wants to exploit that like John Boehner, but then it also ends up encouraging by inviting them into the tent. And one point of my book is that while it does ebb and flow, it's never not there. You know, like, so let's just look at Mitt Romney, who you mentioned. Mitt Romney by all accounts, a decent fellow. He, you know, when he was a governor of Massachusetts, he called himself a progressive, progressive Republican. When he runs in 2012, I almost feel sorry for the guy. You know, there's, it's Tea Party fervor out there. He runs to the right on immigration and abortion and everything else that he had been more moderate on. But what he does too, remember in 20, uh, in that campaign in 2012 is he embraces Donald Trump. Donald Trump, by that point, was the leading proponent of the racist birther conspiracy theory that was like, you know, one of the Tea Party's favorite notions, right? And Rush Limbaugh was talking about it. And even though it had died down, Trump had brought it back. And while he's promoting this theory, Mitt Romney goes to Las Vegas and accepts Trump's endorsement hugs the guy and gushes over him. In a lot of ways, this was one of Trump's first big political plays. He had talked about running in 2012, decided not to, and his endorsement had never meant anything in American politics prior to this. But now it means a lot. His statue is up on the right and amongst Republicans. And Mitt Romney, 
frankly elevates him by you know accepting his his now his endorsement, and then Trump goes on to campaign and fundraise for Mitt Romney. So while Mitt Romney is not mouthing birtherism, he is still accepting its chief champion. And, you know, and the same thing, you know, you mentioned, you know, George W., he tried to stay away from it, but when he needed it, he, you know, he endorsed the Christian coalition. But more importantly, he went to Bob Jones University, which had a ban on interracial dating, interracial marriage in the year 2000, and also was full of anti-Catholicism, believing Catholic, you know, Catholicism was was the work of the devil. So they were bigots in that in that way. And, you know, I've met George W. Bush, and of course, I think he, he was disastrous in what he did with Iraq. But as a person, I don't think he's a bigot or a racist. But he, when he needed to, endorsed that, you know, uh, that institution. So you're right. Sometimes it's been more enthusiastically and explicitly accepted, acknowledged by Republican leaders. And other times they've done it because they felt they had to. David, I've got an alternative theory here, and I think it's maybe an appropriate one since we're talking about the GOP as an institution. And, you know, you're talking about turbulence driving fear, and you put it in kind of this national context. Uh, Turbulence in the country is driving fear about the future of the country. And it got me thinking about this in an institutional sense. Perhaps it's not turbulence in the country that's driving fear in the country um, as much as turbulence for the party driving fear about the party's future. And some of these examples of times that the GOP have resorted to extremism have been times when they've really just been afraid of losing and haven't felt comfortable and confident in their own position in the American political landscape. I mean, the 1990s, this time when the national system appeared to be in good health, the GOP had been in the woods for the first time in a decade and a half. Uh, After 12 years in the White House, the GOP were suddenly rudderless and worried that they might not win another presidential election in a while. And it drove this new wave of extremism. We talked about how when FDR won every state except for Maine and Vermont, it led to uh, a bit of psychosis beginning to boil inside the Republican Party that were shut out. And we're talking about this demographic concept and how uh, many of these uh, Republican voters seem like they're afraid about the future of the country because of demographic change. I'm wondering if it's also perhaps even more importantly, their fear of the future of the Republican Party when demographic change has impacted the country and that they've actually embraced this idea of demographics being destiny as much as some of the most uh, Kool-Aid drunk Democratic campaign advisors, that they really just don't think that they can possibly win and compete in a country that is no longer in its demographic balance that it previously was. And I wonder if maybe the solution to all of this is a GOP that just feels a little bit more confident, a little bit more comfortable, a little bit less afraid that they can never win again unless they break the system and change the rules. Yeah, that's that's interesting. That may have been a driver at certain points. But like I'm just thinking now of like in the late 50s, or early 60s, the Republicans really believed that they had a modern conservative party and it was time to roll back the welfare state of FDR and that the, and that, and that Nelson Rockefeller and other, those sort of Republicans were weak and that Barry Goldwater libertarianism, this was what was needed for the future of the country. And, you know, they were feeling their oats 
I believe, you know, William F. Buckley was sort of guiding this new modern conservative movement. And it was just a real ideological clash uh, between those who wanted a mixed economy, capitalism with social protections, and those who just said, screw it. You know, the best economy is um, Ayn Rand type of economy. And so that was like a real intellectual battle at that point in time. And I don't think it was done out of fear. Certainly, you know, Nixon felt feared losing and saw racist votes to be had in the South and shifted the party in, in that direction. Uh, I'm just sort of thinking aloud because I hadn't really thought too much about this. Well, let's go back to what Justin mentioned. After 2012, and when the when the the party lost an election and had not won a majority of votes in how many t- years and how many elections? I mean, four or so. Um, when they said, "Oh my God, we need to do something different," right? And Rents Priebus, you know, put together a hundred page document that what they called the autopsy. And what did what do you know? It said we got to reach out to women. We got to reach out to Latinos. We got to reach out to other voters of color. We got to reach out to young people, let them know that we don't hate you and that we have ideas that you might be interested in. And please, you know, and we understand that maybe in the past we have not presented ourselves in a manner that would let you hear our ideas. We've been, you know, may have put you off a bit. And, you know, so there they were saying, okay, let's, let's adjust to this new reality. Let's learn from the past. This came out in 2013. Two years later, Donald Trump was wiping the floor with these other 15 Republicans running for president. Uh, and the part, and the, it was really the base that said, no, thank you. We don't want that. The base had been so, I think, radicalized and going back to Newt Gingrich, to Rush Limbaugh, to Sarah Palin, to the Tea Party. I mean, when you have those voices, which are, as I said earlier, legitimized by Republican leaders saying the real problem here is that the Democrats are trying to destroy the country. They're evil people. Uh, They have secret plans, concentration camps, death panels, and all this other crap. When you've been telling people that for 20, 30 years, and even going back to the McCarthy era, and then you come along and you say, hey, we got some great ideas. And Bobby Jindal has this capital gains tax plan. And, and Chris Christie has this great housing plan. And Jeb Bush knows so much about education. Look at what he did in Florida. These voters say, are you kidding me? You've just told me we're about to be eaten alive by Satanists who want to put me in a concentration camp. And now you want me to listen to your agricultural subsidy plans? And so, of course, you know, you know, Trump came along and said, I'm not giving them any of that. I'm giving them the red meat. I think it's, you know, not necessarily that they've lost faith in their own ideas. I think now they, it's not that they lost faith. I don't think they give a damn about their own ideas. They've put all principles and policies to the side. It's all become about supporting Trump and the lost cause of the 2020 election. Now it's a cult of personality. But there was this moment, John, after, you know, when you, when it looked like Republicans were going to try to, do what other parties have done in the past. What we're giving the public isn't really working. Let's figure out how to do this and, and not be afraid of our, of our, of our ideas. And it's like, you know, the old saying about dog food, you know, you can, you know, put it in front of a dog, but if the dog doesn't eat it, it doesn't matter how good your ads are. 
<laughs> so I want to just follow up. You've been hitting on a lot of buzzwords that have molded my public experience. So you start mentioning, for example, Sarah Palin in the death panels. A person that I worked with very closely in Congress claims to have created that term. And he worked for a Tea Party member all the way up through 2020. And I think he was indicted or subpoenaed. He was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee for the stop the seal stuff. Additionally, you talk about the Nazi chants and the posters. President Obama, and you touch on this in your book, came to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and he gave a speech on Obamacare that I was sitting at and I got to ask him a question. On the left-hand side, walking into this idyllic public high school, nice part of New Hampshire, you have, or on the right side, you have all the progressives and the liberals with signs saying healthcare for all and where every life matters and uh, a different type of tone. On the left-hand side, you have a picture of Hitler and Obama and just this gross vitriol. So that leads me up to my question. And I, I experienced this working for the Tea Party voters. They were worried about chemtrails. They were worried about uh, President Obama being a king through executive order, like you hit on earlier, um, all the way up uh, through the Trump election, which I worked at the RNC and a lot of these themes were consistent. So my question to you is, and this is probably just because I, I lived it, I see no difference between the Tea Party and the MAGA movement with the exception of Trump having the megaphone. And that has amplified everything and everybody's been able to come out from from wherever they were hiding. If you were to point to some salient differences between the extremist Tea Party movement that unseated Boehner and now the MAGA movement that we see with leaders like Jim Jordan and Matt Gates and Donald Trump, what would they be if there are any? That's a good question. I think that basically it's the same thing, right? It's just the Tea Party was most active in 2009, 2010, but it kept on going to the 2012 election. Remember, Michelle Bachman was was a leader of the Republican presidential primary for a while, and then Newt Gingrich, who was running as a Tea Party guy, was the leader for a while, and they all kind of faded. Um, so it kept going for for a while. And then, you know, Trump starts running in the summer of, or spring or summer of 2015, right? So there's not a large gap. So it's clearly, you know, more or less a continuation. I think in some ways, you know, one of the biggest differences is there was no true Tea Party leader in terms of politics. There was Glenn, there were leading voices, and I would call Glenn Beck one of them, but he was a, a TV loudmouth, not a politician running for office. And of course, you know, Mitt Romney, who became the 2012 nominee, was not a Tea Party leader. I think what you have with, with Trumpism is you have an elected official, presidential candidate and a president, who could fill the role of the leader of that movement and give it shape and turn it into a personality cult, uh, but direct it and from, from the top down and reflect it, right? It's, you know, leaders reflect the base, the base takes, you know, it's lead from leaders. Um, so I think that is, you know, a big, big difference. People thought at the time that Sarah Palin might become the leader of the Tea Party, might run in 2012, but she just was too erratic and not disciplined enough um, to do that. So that, that's one big difference. I do think that if we're looking at what's happened in the last 
couple of days, literally, Donald Trump's embrace of QAnon is not an aberration or something different from what the Tea Party is, but it is just a further escalation of the conspiratorial craziness that we saw with the Tea Party. I mean, I have, you know, in, 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 in the book, I'll say the title, American Psychosis, a whole section about a guy you might have known, Justin, Congressman Bob Inglis, who was a Republican from South Carolina. He had like perfect sco- scores as a conservative. And he ran in the 2010 um, election in the primary, but he would not call Barack Obama a socialist. And when he went back to South Carolina, met with his constituents, they said, don't you know, he's a socialist trying to destroy the country. And he would say, no, actually, I think he's just different and wrong on policy and I'm happy to fight him on that account. And then they would say, well, what about the number in the back of your social security card? He goes, what number in the back of your social security card? The one that identifies the bank that owns you. And he would sort of like get this look on his face and they would say, you're a congressman and you don't know that there's a number in the back of your of your social security card about the bank that owns you for your entire life. And he didn't know how to respond to these people. He went and he talked to Boehner and said, what do you say? He goes, just tell them that you're bashing Obama on health care, this thing and that thing. He goes, John, you don't get it. That's not good enough for these people. That is not even close to good enough. And he ended up, there was a lawyer in his district who ran in the Republican primary against him and won with like 60, 70% of the vote. And that was Trey Gowdy. And Bob English was as conservative as one could be in a reasonable manner. Um, and it's kind of sad. That was in 2010. And now, you you know, 12 years later, you see the Republican Party has set up these barriers or, or these qualifications that if you don't support Trump and the big lie, you're gone. We have no interest in you. If you're not feeding and part of the paranoia, you're gone. And now that he's endorsed QAnon and it's, you know, craziness, this happened a couple of days ago, happened last week from when we're talking, and I still have yet to see a single Republican say, this is not good for the country, you know, it's not good for the party to say that the world is being controlled by a secret cabal of Democrats, media people, other elites, Hollywood people, the Pope, and that they're eating babies and engaged in sex trafficking and worshiping Satan. This is what Trump now has endorsed, and the Republican Party is just rolling with it. And I think what you hit on was from 2012 through 2015, the leaders of Really, the Republican Party movement were Hannity and Limbaugh, and they were in the media. I'd argue the Tea Party reached strength in September of 15 when they unseated uh, Speaker Boehner. My boss was was big into that. Um, and, and now it's moved into Trump truly having the megaphone along with Hannity and Tucker Carlson. And folks learned from Boehner that you don't go against this grassroots movement. And then folks learned from former guests on our show, like Peter Meyer who was not pro-Trump, he lost in a primary. And it's just this almost this self-perpetuating theory that uh, you can't go against the grassroots, the worst extremes in the party. So I guess the the question I have for you is how should we, how should the media treat 
people in the Republican Party that maybe truly don't believe in these ideas, maybe aren't out there espousing them. Like, for example, Mitt Romney and George W. Bush. And when they do stuff that they have to do to gain power within the party, should they be pilloried for being these extremists? And does that really help us regain control of the party? What to do about a party that's off the rails and and being dominated by psychosis is a big problem. It's it's, It's obviously a bigger problem now than it was, I think, in 2000 or 1980. I think that element of the party has become both larger in number, more dominant, and more radicalized. I think it has deep roots. I think the roots have gotten deeper and the poison ivy has, you know, has spread. But I, I do think the media, you know, which is a term I hate using because it just, what does it mean? But, but in, in, in general terms, you know, has not been wise enough to this part of the Republican story. One example, I get, I was old enough at the time, but I didn't really know this and pick up on this time. And I was pick up on this and I was quite surprised when I came across it while doing my, my research for the book. And that is the 1980 race. In 1980, Jimmy Carter, having not a great presidency, is running against Ronald Reagan, the, who had been governor of, of California, the former actor. And Reagan is, embracing what is called the new right and the religious right, which both contain tremendously extreme elements that are out there saying Democrats want to destroy Christianity. The moral majority, which is the the, the, the epitome of the religious right, was taking out ads saying that Jimmy Carter was not a good Christian and that he had betrayed the South. This is a guy who taught Sunday school, you know, Sunday school every every day in the South. And Jerry Falwell, who was leading the moral majority at the time, was saying that gay people want to kill Americans. And there were leaders of the moral majority, leaders in leadership roles who were actually saying, you know, under God's law, you can execute homosexuals. And Ronald Reagan embraced these people who also were saying, if you don't support Ronald Reagan, there'll be no freedom in this country in four years. I mean, they were apocalyptic, they were paranoid, and they were homophobic and, I would say, peddling hate. Ronald Reagan embraced these people, you know, and praised them um, publicly, said, I endorse you at a big gathering of them. And Jimmy Carter, at one point in the campaign, very, very, very gently raised the issue that there were some extremist elements in the campaign and you know affecting the 1980 election. And the press went batshit. They accused him of being mean. They jumped on him. Are you saying that Ronald Reagan's a racist? No, 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 no. And the idea of talking about extremism and how it was affecting the race, um, the media, the press itself could not absorb, and they used it as an attack on Carter and it so freaked out his campaign that they didn't do it again. And so that's an instance where I do think these things need to be called out. George H.W. Bush forming an alliance with Pat Robertson um, in the early 90s, when Robertson puts out a book full of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories 
you know, with, 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 with secret societies, the Federal Reserve, the Trilateral Commissioner, Commission, Henry Kissinger, all working for Satan to impose a one-world collectivist dictatorship on the entire planet. And George H.W. Bush is an accomplice. So this is a book that sells hundreds of thousands of copies. The Wall Street Journal calls it trash. It's a bestseller. And after it comes out, Bush goes to the Christian Coalition Convention, that's Pat Robertson's group, and praises Pat Robertson. There was one story about this I found going back in the day. It was written by my former co-author, Michael Isikoff. And we, when I did a podcast with him a few days ago, he he vaguely remembered that story. But it was like, okay, he did one story, and that was the only thing I could find on Pat Robertson's loony conspiracy theories, you know, theories in the mainstream media while George H.W. Uh, Bush and the Republican Party uh, were embracing him. So I think just calling out and keeping that stuff in the public eye is the first necessity. David, it's interesting you're talking about the embrace of conspiracy theories. And it's curious how in the MAGA era, a lot of the conspiracy theories that they've embraced have been conspiracy theories that we kind of previously associated with the far left. One example is anti-vaccine. Another example is the 9-11 conspiracy theories. And to me, it's quite personal because my uncle was killed on the September 11th attacks. And during the Bush presidency, I, I heard a lot of people that I thought of as the far left that were embracing that idea that it was an inside job the US government had killed by family member in these attacks. And I was horrified by this. And now I've seen it much more often on the right. One of the first places that I saw this sort of material popping up on the right was in the self-identified libertarian wing of the GOP, Ron Paul. And it's funny how we're talking about similarities and differences the continuity and the contrast between uh, the Tea Party and the MAGA era. And a lot of it is that libertarian part of the GOP that carried over and became strong during the MAGA era. If you asked, I think I've seen some data, polls of Trump voters, so many of them identified as being libertarian and had voted for Ron Paul. And it's kind of counterintuitive that there's this connection between libertarianism, self-identified, and authoritarianism, because they're supposed to be opposites, but they're very strongly connected on the American right. How do you account for that? These two ideas that should be opposites. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, they, they, you just raised a lot of key elements there. And if I don't get to all of them, remind me, because I want to talk about everything you just said. But let me just first start off about, you know, you're talking about conspiracy theories on the left and the right. And yes, there were conspiracy theories on the left. And like the 9-11 conspiracy theory, you know, I first noticed it on the left, but it pretty soon jumped, you know, to the other side or came out on the other side. And I'm thinking of people like Alex Jones, who's certainly not a, a, a lefty, but a libertarian-ish. He did float around in the in the artsy circles in Austin, like with Richard Linklater. I mean, well, he was a special guest. He had a special guest badge at the Cleveland Convention in 2016. And Donald Trump praised him when he was running in 2015. And I'm going to get to Rand Paul, not Ron Paul in a second. But one point I, I, I make in the book, and I ended up discussing this with um, Joe Scarborough the other day, and I was very somewhat pleasantly surprised that we ended up agreeing. And that is, while there, yes, there has been conspiracy theory and kooky ideas on the left, you don't have the relationship between political leaders, the Democrats, 
embracing and championing these ideas. They've always remained, yeah, there's, they're on the left. Okay, but the, you, you don't see Nancy Pelosi or Barack Obama or Bill Clinton or anybody bringing them into the party. In fact, those people tend to hate Democrats because they don't see the real truth. And the one time there was a congresswoman from, I believe, Georgia, Cynthia McKinney, who started espousing some 9-11 truth or stuff, and she was primaried and driven out of the Democratic Party. It's literally the opposite of what you've seen on the right. Um, so there's an asymmetry there that I think, you know, people should, you know, be mindful of. But then, you know, you talk about Ron Paul. Now, when people in the Trump movement, a lot of them say they voted for Ron Paul, that they're lying because Ron Paul didn't get that many votes. It's like everybody who said they were at Woodstock or saw Bruce Springsteen at the Stone Pony. Maybe now they w wish they had voted for Ron Paul. But I, I, I take your point that there is that affinity there. And I, you know, care more about Rand Paul in a way. Because when he ran for Senate, I covered, I, I think I was the only person writing about this. He had been a frequent guest on the Alex Jones show and had been a complete conspiracy theory uh, champion on many different fronts. You know, not so much 9-11, although I, there was a little bit of sort of Cheney did the war in Iraq for Halliburton, that type of conspiracy theory, but also, you know, secret plans to unite United States with Canada and Mexico and of one currency, that type of far-right libertarian conspiracy theory stuff. And, you know, I remember thinking, if this guy can get elected and be accepted by the Republican Party, it's a real bellwether because he was very, very far out there. And, you know, and, and it, it, it was sort of an early sign of that the grassroots of the Republican Party was very susceptible to this paranoia thinking. And then to, you know, get to your point about libertarianism and authoritarianism, yeah, you think they should be different. But what we're seeing here with Trump is it may not be a libertarian that's anti-government, but also anti-elite and anti, you know, looking at sort of cultural targets more than government. Yes, they don't like government, but they really don't like Hollywood and academia and all this. And they don't like being woke. They don't like woke corporations. They don't like, you know, people saying you can't say that because then, you know, you can't insult people because then you're not being politically correct. And the same instance, they seem to want to have a strong man, authoritarian figure who can just come in there and say, the world will be the way you want it to be. And I keep, you know, remembering this awful moment when Steve Bannon, the, the night before the invasion of Ukraine, and I believe Eric Prince was this guest on the show, but, but definitely Bannon. And they're making, they're kind of laughing about how much they like Vladimir Putin and why they, you know, why, why would you not support Vladimir Putin? This is a guy who doesn't fly rainbow flags and who sure ain't woke. So there is a part of this cultural battle in which they're looking at Viktor Orban and Erdogan and other strongman leaders who can say, forget the gays, forget being woke, forget being politically correct. And I think there's also for some a religious element that they see Vladimir Putin in a way as being a defender of conservative Christianity 
against the hordes of um, of Muslims and and, and 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 others who they see as a threat. John, to your point, I wish it was as simple that there was just one thing going on here. I think there are overlapping things. So there is a strong libertarian element and a strong authoritarian element. And you think that they would bounce off each other. But here, I'm doing this on, you know, on, on the radio, you can't see me. I'm interlacing my fingers. And they're like kind of finding the sweet spots where they can cohabitate. I just wanted to ask one more question. I mean, everything that you're saying, David, reminds me of, and this was a mistake on my part, probably shouldn't have booked him, didn't know much about him, just thought he was a normal conservative. We had Eric Erickson on the show. And what he, t- <laughs> so uh, mea culpa to, to the listeners there, um, because he is rather full of hate and bigotry. Um, but he did say this, he gave us a warning, if you don't like the Christian conservative right, right now, wait for its what it's going to turn into once they truly do break away from the church. They do uh, embrace Trump because there is a strain of mysticism. You know, the Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jew lasers, and whatever the hell that hatred was. So so it's making me think of you saying this is a multifaceted, nuanced problem. And, you know, one movement will come in here and the libertarians will come in here and they'll all find their way uh, into the middle with uh, President Trump. But that brings me to the next question, American psychosis, folks, it's a great history if you're trying to figure out what is going on in 2024 for when there's an ultimate election. Let's say Trump doesn't run and let's say DeSantis does and he clears out the field. Do you think, David, that Ron DeSantis is as bad as Trump? Or another way to reframe that is Trump has set the bar ridiculously low. Where does Ron DeSantis set the bar? Yeah, that's a great question. I think Ron DeSantis is far more sophisticated and smarter than Trump. I think, you know, he wants to exploit the same fears and grievances and resentments and hatreds that Trump has been exploiting, but to do it with a, not I wouldn't say more gentle, but with a more deft hand. And I also think that if he gets elected, he would be much more of a threat in a lot of ways because he would have the discipline and the attention span to actually do what Trump never could do was use the government to implement some of his crazy and excessive um, and hate-driven ideas. You look at like the Muslim ban and how just sloppy it was. I mean, it's a terrible thing, but the implementation of it basically doomed it, right? Ron DeSantis will want to engage, I believe, in that type of race-driven politics, and he will find ways to make you know, do it that may withstand court challenge, at least initial court challenge. So in that way, he's more wily and crafty and and smarter than Trump. He, you know, won't endorse QAnon, right? He, I don't think he'll go that far. He'll find a way to play to those elements in a different manner, often by just attacking the Democrats for being Antifa-loving woke commies. Right. So he'll get close to what Trump says, but won't be as crude about it. This is not an original thought, but I have been saying for years now, the problem is not Trump, but Trumpism. And you can have Trumpism without Trump. And if you have tens of millions of Americans who are driven by, you know, by fear, not hope, and who don't believe reality, 
who don't accept the 2020 election or who even worse believe the QAnon conspiracy theory, that is a, a sort of a political sickness. That's why I call the book American Psychosis. Psychosis is when you're, you don't recognize reality. You're detached from reality. And as long as we have millions of Americans who um, are in that condition, they're susceptible to demagoguery. And, you know, DeSantis, you know, had, you know, I'm not sure he has the ability. I mean, I think he comes across as a bit of a creep, but my tastes don't matter here. But is he able to, you know, keep Trump's base energized with that steady flow of hatred and, you know, radicalized extremism and still connect with some suburban Republican voters, particularly women, and form this, you know, MAGA, non-MAGA coalition. That's what he has to do. It takes a certain amount of talent to do that, and it may be tough, but we see how the Electoral College is structured and how Trump almost won, even though he had, what, seven, eight million votes less than Joe Biden. It's certainly possible for DeSantis to get to that point should he become the nominee. Well, Politics and Media 101 listeners, that ends our show for this evening with David Korn, author, journalist, and most recently writer of American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy. Please join us again next Tuesday at 5 a.m. Eastern. And as always, please remember to share our podcast with your family, friends, and everybody else that you think might be interested. Thank you very much. Thank you.